Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, We're going to pick up the same format that we had last week, which I I suspect may be our format for a lot of weeks going forward too, where we're going to do a quick news roundup to start off. We're going to talk about three quick topics very briefly, and then we'll go into our question of the week segment Uh, and Aaron this week has been preparing this so he'll do most of the talking during that segment and I'll be asking him some questions Um, the question is uh, whether tech companies can fix their streaming rights issues for video with acquisitions and obviously the context here is uh, the fact that Time Warner or some part of Time Warner is reported to be up for sale as we discussed briefly last week Um, we're going to dive deeper into that into whether companies like Apple, Google, Amazon and so on would actually benefit from buying some or all of those assets or or what other assets might be available for them to buy and whether that would be a good idea or not. So that'll be our deep dive central topic today. And then our third segment will be uh, a preview of Apple's earnings that come out next week. And they will be coming out uh, shortly before we record next week's episode. So I imagine next week we'll devote a fair amount of time to reviewing those results after the fact. But uh, we'll obviously cover some of the major elements of the earnings in terms of different products, iPhone, watch, iPad, Apple TV, and, and so on, uh, as well as guidance. Uh, so that, that preview will be our third major topic today. And then we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick. And I've got a couple of uh, game apps for iOS that I'm going to recommend during that segment at the end. So let's kick off with the news roundup. The first uh, topic that I wanted to talk about was the Netflix earnings from this week. Um, Netflix is often one of the first companies to report, at least among the universe of companies that I look at regularly. Um, uh, There were two interesting things here. One, uh, I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago when Netflix announced its Netflix Everywhere initiative to sort of take Netflix global. Uh, I wrote a piece that sort of said this is going to have a huge financial impact. And what wasn't clear on that day and has become clear since and was certainly reiterated on the earnings call uh, was just how uh, much Netflix is going to soft pedal that launch internationally. So they haven't really done much localization. So it's going to be mostly attracting English speakers in these markets. There's no new content for those markets yet either. Um, They are pricing it at a pretty high price. Um, and not doing a huge amount of marketing, which they usually do do in the new markets that they launch in. So for all kinds of reasons, they're not going to have the same big bang sign-up of new subscribers in most of these new markets that they've had and the other ones that they've launched until now. Um, The other interesting thing that I picked up on was uh, that Reed Hastings said on the earnings call, or interview as they call it, it's a YouTube thing that they do, uh, he said that in these markets they were going after elites, which was uh, really a reference to the high prices compared to sort of disposable income in these countries. But he said a good shorthand for who we're targeting is iPhone owners. Uh, and I found that interesting that he called that out specifically. And it's shorthand. It's not literal. It doesn't mean they're necessarily just going to go after people who own iPhones. But it's just an indication of how in these markets, the segment that owns iPhones is also the segment that's going to be most attractive for a lot of other companies moving into those markets, trying to grow their business there. And that, you know, Netflix's relationship with Apple, where they now do in-app billing for Netflix and so on, uh, is going to be an important part of that. Um, and that, you know, there's going to be this whole economy uh, of other companies that builds off the iPhone installed base in these markets. Was there anything that kind of stood out from either that or anything else in the Netflix earnings to you? Well, I think it pushes down the road where Netflix has chance to do really well in these markets and it's with the local content i mean even if you're going after the elites they like watching the stuff that's been produced in their native language you know they're just their television shows you know other there's there's a lot of stuff that they watch that's locally produced and and in fact i think the truth is netflix has an opportunity here that 
that nobody has really tapped into. If you produce television shows or other things like that locally, piracy is still a huge problem. And I think Netflix has a chance to beat the convenience of, of piracy because the idea is you can just pull it up streaming on your phone for your monthly fee. And I think that um, the content producers over in these various countries where they're launching are going to be excited to make money off of the rewatchability of their shows um, through uh, through Netflix, where they can actually make money rather than you know through piracy, where they're not getting anything. So I, I think being slow about this by Netflix is smart, um, and but it also means that the upside right of capturing all this local content is going to be delayed yeah absolutely i think it's going to be more of a slow burn than i initially anticipated based on on what they announced on the day at ces um our second topic today is one that you suggested aaron this is about apple uh requesting the right to be able to open its own stores in india and obviously the context here is that apple obviously sells devices in india but they've had to do it through third parties through sort of mini apple stores within other retailers and so on and one of the reasons for that is there are caps on um, who can open their own stores in India. It used to be based on um, you know, certain requirements of uh, essentially buying components locally and things like that. They've, they've recently been relaxed, and that's kind of the context for Apple doing this. But Aaron, why did you want to talk about this today? Well, I think the Apple retail experience is such a necessary ingredient to the special sauce that makes Apple so desirable. I think being able to go into an Apple store and see the products, touch them, you know, try them out, have an experienced salesperson guiding you through what makes them better. I think that's all really essential to what has helped Apple grow in the U.S. I think it has a lot to do with why Apple is growing so quickly now in China, where they didn't before. Um, it's Apple putting its best foot forward. And the fact that they haven't had that opportunity yet in India, I think explains why India has had slower uptake of Apple products. There's a, there's a, a rapidly growing middle class in India, just like there is in China. But if you're going into a subpar retail experience to buy these things, you're less likely to buy them. And so I think I think even having just a handful of flagship stores in India is going to make a huge difference because once that happens, more people start buying them and then, then those who have bought them become the ambassadors for their friends and family. And I think Apple's growth in India is going to see a noticeable uptick once they get a, a handful of really nice stores over there. Yeah, I think um, India is such an interesting one because there are a lot of people who naturally compare it to China. You know, populations of very similar sizes, you know, have been relatively underpenetrated by Apple. Um, you know, in, in China, obviously, that's changed in the last couple of years. In India, that's still the case. Um, and, and so I see the temptation of comparing the two. I do worry that some people assume it's just going to be the same in India. And there are so many things that are different about these two markets. And not least the fact that, you know, average incomes are actually still a lot lower in India than they are in China. I think also there's a different approach towards spending money on things like this in India than there is in China. And you hate to overgeneralize, but culturally in China, there's a huge conspicuous consumption uh, element where people like to be seen to be spending a lot of money on things. In India, it's almost the reverse of that, where people like to be seen as frugal. Um, and obviously doesn't apply universally, but I mean, that's something that Apple's been fighting against there, is people would rather buy the cheaper device that does a good job and be seen to be spending their money wisely than they would like to buy really expensive products and be seen to be doing that. And so that's another thing that's been holding uh, Apple back in India. There's also a very strong local contingent in terms of the, the smartphone market in India, you know, Micromax and other Indian vendors 
very strong domestically. Um, and there's an element of national pride that feeds that. Um, and, and, but, you know, Samsung's been big there still. But, again, not necessarily by selling the kind of phones that Samsung likes to sell everywhere else. It's been, again, the lower end of the market, the more sort of frugal value purchase. And so I, I do wonder whether, you know, Apple will be able to make such a significant investment in India that really makes a huge difference given the likely prospects for, for what they're going to sell there. I think it will be very interesting to watch how many stores they put there over the next few years, whether it's just one or two or, or five or, or whatever, whether they really do make a big push in the way that they have in China over the last few years. I think that's true. I, I mean, I don't think the upside is anywhere as big as China is for Apple, but I think the point is that there's still a lot of upside in, in India, and I think Apple stores are a necessary element in the recipe to have success there. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree with that 100%. Um, so the third topic was an announcement that was made, we were recording this on Wednesday, it was made this morning um, from Apple, kind of out of the blue, which was uh, an update to the GarageBand app and a brand new app for iOS, which is called Music Memos. Um, and this one's interesting because it seems to have kind of grown organically out of the voice memos app, which a lot of musicians have been using just to capture riffs and things like that as they've come up with them and just quickly record them. But you record them and there's really nothing you can do with them within the voice memo app other than sort of play it back and then, you know, recreate the, the music somewhere else. Um, and so this music memos app kind of uses the voice memos app almost as a template and then but it goes much, much further than that. It's really very clever. Um, the way it works. I'm not a musician. I don't have either a piano or a guitar to hand. And so this morning I was playing with it, cheating a little bit by playing um, music from another device and having it capture that and then working with it. But it's very clever in terms of how it detects the music that you're playing and the chords and so on. And then you can add um, background uh, instruments such as you know a guitar or drums or whatever. And, and even there, there's a lot of elements that you can tweak, although the UI for finding those is a bit unintuitive. But um, I found it you know, really uh, surprising that this kind of came out of the blue, but interesting too that this is another sort of big, big-ish anyway, announcement from Apple that's come completely off the usual cycle of announcements, a bit like the, the betas that were released a couple of weeks ago that we discussed on the podcast in a previous episode. But any thoughts from you on that one, Aaron? Well, I think it shows, I think this is a, this is a cultural signifier of how things are working inside Apple still, which is that Apple still allows for these kind of side projects to come to life if they find them valuable. I know that's how Aperture got its start. So Randy Ubelos, who is the now retired but formerly chief video architect at Apple, I mean, this was a side project of his that became what it was. And obviously Apple eventually lost the fight to Lightroom. But but it was it was organic. It wasn't sort of strategic, okay, what next product do we need to dedicate resources to? They're still making room internally for people to work on stuff they care about. And this is clear. I mean, I guess I don't know this for sure, but this clearly seems like that kind of an effort and that kind of an app. And I think it signifies that culturally Apple still hangs on to this idea of serendipity when it comes to advancements and, and the kinds of things that they want to offer to everybody else. And I think that's a good sign, honestly, because it's been part of what's made Apple successful over the years. So, you know, it, I, I realize I'm reading a lot into this, this, you know, convenient little app, but, uh, the point is, is it costs time and money and, and, and other resources for Apple to put this out. And the idea that they would have pursued this project strategically doesn't feel right to me. It feels like it was probably organic. And, and you know, I'm sure the engineer behind it saw it as a labor of love. And now it's seeing the light of day, which is really cool. Yeah, the other thing that I find interesting and a possible counterpoint to that is, um, you know, with 
Apple Music, you've got this connect tool, which, you know, haven't, hasn't been talked about a ton. You know, I've, I've largely stopped kind of even dipping into that tab on my phone. Um, but, you know, as a way for musicians kind of almost personally to get stuff out there to their fans and so on. And so, you know, Apple's always worked with labels. They, they've rarely worked directly with the musicians. And with Connect, you could feel that starting to change a little bit. And this feels like, you know, with the quotes from uh, a couple of prominent uh, artists in the press release, um, you know, it really feels like Apple's trying to build relationships directly with musicians as well. And this is another example of something that we talked about back when Apple Music first launched, which is that they're almost creating a sort of cradle-to-grave solution for, for musicians, uh, for want of a, better, of a better word, where they can you know, create their stuff there, they can share it through Connect, they, you know, once they're big enough, they can license it to Apple Music as part of the subscription service, and then keep the relationship going through Connect, you know, keep creating new music, or at least starting the process of music creation now through Garage, band and through music memos and so on and so just kind of deepening that relationship directly with artists as well and so that's the one thing that makes me wonder whether this is perhaps part of a broader strategic push to appeal more directly to musicians to become you know at least part of their creative tools for actually making music in the first place well let's move on to our question of the week and again as I said at the beginning the, the question here today is uh, can tech companies fix their streaming video rights issues with acquisitions and again the context is um, Time Warner has been reported to be either up for sale or willing to sell some of its assets uh, and potential buyers have been uh, listed as you know Apple, Amazon and others uh, from the tech world. Um, we've also had obviously Apple working on um, some kind of streaming video service and apparently frustrated with the rights process there and not being able to get a deal done. And that was referenced this week in an interview that John Skipper of ESPN did with uh, the Wall Street Journal. Um, so there's lots of kind of context for this. The question is just, is this a good idea, basically? And would, would acquiring Time Warner or HBO potentially from Time Warner be realistic? Would it help solve problems for you know, Apple or Amazon or somebody else who might want to buy those assets? Uh, and so that's really what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes here. So let's start out. I've mentioned Time Warner, but it's not the only company that, that's in this category. So Aaron, why don't we start out by talking about what are the, the media assets out there? Is Time Warner the only one? Are there others that could be potential acquisitions for these companies um, I mean there are, <clears throat> there are, there are always others uh, but not not very many of them are likely at all I think the next likeliest is probably Viacom whether or not that which is owned by Sumner Redstone whether or not that would include CBS which is a separate company also owned by Redstone it's hard to say um, the truth is Viacom's been struggling lately investors have been unhappy um, their TV properties specifically Nickelodeon, MTV, Comedy Central, have seen declining viewership lately. And so Viacom, I think, would also be another company in consideration. Whether or not that includes CBS is hard to say. It's important to point out, though, that with Time Warner and Viacom, these are not small purchases. I mean, Time Warner's market cap today was around $56 billion. Viacom and CBS together <clears throat> have a market cap of about $38 billion. And so these would be huge, huge acquisitions for any company, right. Apple included. And, um, you know, the, the people behind the scenes kind of pushing for the, these changes to happen to these media companies, I don't think they're thinking of wholesale acquisitions. I think they're thinking of piecing them out. The problem is that... Uh, Time Warner and Viacom and the others probably aren't willing to do that. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, Viacom doesn't seem all that attractive as an asset either. I mean, you reference some of the declines in, in viewership. You know, Comedy Central's had a really tough time. They've lost arguably their two biggest personalities over the last couple of years right. um, to, to others or just, you know, to leaving the business at least temporarily. Um, you know, CBS is interesting but comes with a lot of baggage as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's a complex business with, you know, outdoor advertising business and, and radio and all kinds of other stuff that wouldn't necessarily be relevant uh, to one of these acquirers. Are, are there any others out there? I mean, you mentioned that these are perhaps the most likely. Are there others? Well, this is part of the problem because the others fit into essentially two buckets. They're either gigantic, like Disney, whose market cap today was $155 billion, or right. 21st Century Fox, their market cap's around $50 billion. So you've got that group that are huge purchases, mm. like Viacom and Time Warner would be. And then the other problem, and then the other end is they're all pretty small, like Discovery Communications. Um and uh, Scripps, who has HGTV, the Food Network, those other right. cable channels. And they're both pretty small. Discovery's market mm-hmm. cap is around $10 billion right now. Scripps is around 7 But the problem with – this is the problem. It, any of these media companies, you're, you're, you're stuck between two choices. You either take on a, a, a behemoth, a gigantic operation with all kinds of divisions and subsidiaries, or you're buying – a small company, but with that only comes a tiny slice of the available television content that's out there. I mean, really, right. you're like you know, with Discovery and Scripps, you're getting this tiny handful of 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 television shows that people are watching, and so mm-hmm. there's not there's not an attractive option among any of these unless you really are fully committed to running a, me- a major media company. Right. Right, which is kind of beside the point, right? I mean, yeah, it's exactly. not necessarily the best way to solve the issue. So, so what would you get by buying one of these companies? I mean, you, you've mentioned several times that there are lots of moving parts underneath the kind of big corporate structure. So what, what are some of the examples of that? Well, and so when I approached this question, I, I came into it thinking, okay, this is something Apple should be taking seriously. And it was actually when I was running through Time Warner's various divisions that I came to the realization that they would be buying this massively complex thing. I mean, for really any of the big companies that we've talked about, Time Warner, Fox, um, CBS slash Viacom, Disney, you're getting movie studios, television networks, production companies, website properties, a whole bunch of international media properties that Americans don't even know exist. And then on top of that, you're getting news networks, which come with a whole new layer of complexity. And right. that's that's just a lot. I mean, to, to kind of walk through Time Warner as an example, Time Warner reports on three major divisions. One is HBO. HBO is the one everybody sort of gets because really it's just HBO and Cinemax. A bunch of it is unique custom programming that they put together themselves. Um, obviously, they also get access, early access for uh, movies that come out, but that's about it. HBO seems obvious and clear, but if you buy Time Warner, you also get Turner Entertainment. And Turner comes with TBS, TNT, Adult Swim, Cartoon Network, True TV, CNN, right, and Headline mm-hmm. News. And underneath each of those, there are a whole bunch of properties, including websites, individual shows, production companies, and so forth. And that is a massive, massive thing to take on. And we haven't even got yet to Warner Brothers Entertainment, which would be the third division Mm -hmm. that Apple would buy if they bought Time Warner. And that obviously comes with with, um, a massive movie studio in Warner Brothers, but also a whole bunch of television shows. And... uh, and and other website properties. And so the, this is the thing. If Apple bought this, 
right? Or Time Warner, or for that matter, Viacom, or any of mm-hmm. these other big ones, 20th, 21st Century Fox, if they buy any of these, they're buying, I, I mean, these incredibly huge, huge businesses, complex, right. a lot of variety. And, uh, and that's, a, that's, that's a big purchase, not just financially. Like, that's a big commitment in terms of attention right. and resources. Yeah, I mean, you might want Game of Thrones, but you get Bugs Bunny into the mix as well, right? right? So yeah. it's kind of, yeah. Um, so what about, are there other ways they could go? I mean, for example, could they buy, um, uh, you know, a pay TV provider, a cable company, a satellite company, somebody like that? I mean, they obviously already have those rights. You know, Sling TVs obviously come out of uh, Dish uh, over the last several years, you know, leveraging the rights that they already had, um, you know, and, and Sling TV is assumed to be roughly along the lines of what Apple would launch here, for example. Um, is, is that a possible solution? It is a possibility, but the problem is when you buy a cable or satellite provider, you're buying a business that generally has the worst customer service ratings out there. Um, I mean, Comcast <laughs> right. is notorious for being the least like company in the United States right now. And I don't think it's just because of their bad business practices, although those obviously feed into it. I think it has a lot to do with just the nature of their product. I mean, when you're providing internet service and television to a home, there is a massive inf- infrastructure necessary to actually pull that off. Yep. And I think that infrastructure invites all kinds of difficulties, both logistically, right? Like making sure you're maintaining service for all these people all over the country. You've got a lot of geographic challenges and problems, regulatory problems. But I think it also creates a lot of problems financially having to manage this massive infrastructure. Because this is part of the reason people hate Comcast, because it finds all these different ways to nickel and dime them, right? Charging rental for the cable box, rental fees for the mm-hmm. cable box, uh, making it hard to, to, to cancel your service. I mean, these are all things that Comcast does because maintaining this massive infrastructure is really expensive and you're fighting an uphill battle against what eventually is probably going to be all wireless anyway. Right. And so, um, so it, that's, a, that's a huge huge um, uh, expense to take on and problem set of problems to take on just to get licensing rights to stream content. And I just mm-hmm. can't picture that happening with Apple, with Amazon. Google does have its fiber thing, right? But the truth is mm-hmm. Google Fiber is still very much an experiment. And it's been an experiment leveraged, mostly taking advantage of you know municipal broadband projects that have been rolled out, like here in Provo. And I'm a Google Fiber mm-hmm. customer, and I really, I'm really happy with the service. But I don't subscribe to television, though, through Google Fiber. I just get the Internet. Right, interesting. And I think that's an indicator of why buying a cable or satellite provider is a non-starter for any of these big companies, because... People are expecting streaming to be the future and cord cutting is accelerating. Yeah, it just feels like a bad time to be buying into that business, especially if you're a forward-looking tech company. Right. Um, So you you kind of talked earlier about the fact that you went into this exercise thinking, you know, this is something that Apple in particular should be taking seriously and and we're kind of convinced that it shouldn't be. So what what are some of the other downsides? I mean, we talked about some of them already, but... What are some of the other sort of things that, that Apple or another company would have to deal with if they did go ahead and try to buy either a whole company or a part of one of these companies? Yeah, there are four main downsides that I think were most discouraging as far as this being a solution. The first and the biggest and most obvious one is that this increases the business complexity of any of these companies by orders of magnitude. I mean, especially for Apple, right? I mean, Apple likes mm-hmm. to keep its offerings pretty streamlined. 
it's right. I think one of the simplest businesses there is for considering its size. And uh, I mean, th this takes us so far beyond that. And I just can't picture Apple management or for that matter, Alphabet, you know, AKA Google um, being interested in this. And, and I don't think Amazon's in a place to take on something like this, unless it was a reverse merger kind of thing like AOL did with Time Warner, um, you know, over a decade ago. And that didn't work out very well. So, right. I, I, so I think this is the first big problem is that this is, these are massively complex companies and that require a lot of unique expertise that has been built up over decades. And I have a hard time imagining any of the tech companies being willing to take this business on. I suppose they could always buy them and operate them and just sort of let them operate as subsidiaries and then, you know, skim off the streaming rights. But again, that seems like a crazy decision to make just to get licensing for streaming. I mean, the, the upside to streaming would have to be much bigger, I think, than it is. A second downside is that because of the internet, time spent watching TV shows has been in steady decline. It's been declining by about 2% a year for a little while now, and that is in turn pulling down TV ad revenue by the same percent. Um, <clears throat> now, obviously, Apple is hoping that its Apple TV strategy would change the math here, where it has to rely less on advertising and can rely more on subscription revenue. Mm. But that doesn't address the, the problem of the internet competing for people's attention. I mean, it's true that people right. still watch television shows, even if they are watching them on their tablets or their phones in bed. But they're also checking Facebook and they're also reading, you know, Twitter or like, you know, like on Twitter or Snapchat or other things. And, and so TV just has less of an audience than it used to have, relatively speaking. And and a, an acquisition like we've talked about wouldn't solve that problem at all. Right. A, a third downside, downside is that Netflix and Amazon are already invading this space with their own new content. Um, in fact, Netflix, I think, has been most aggressive and pretty successful with this strategy so far. They've had some huge custom shows and movies um, do really well and i think it's driven a lot of subscription revenue for netflix and this is a trend that's going to continue to erode the value of any media company purchase that apple or google or amazon would make the truth is i think when it comes down to it talent is easier to buy than a massive media company and so does this mean that like apple for example would ever get into producing its own content i don't know that seems like a stretch to me but uh, i would say that's the easier path for apple than buying Time Warner or Viacom. The last downside, which is kind of takes us back to where we started um, regarding ESPN's, um, regarding the comment um, by Skipper to the Wall Street Journal, um, is that it doesn't solve the life sports problem, right? I mean, if they buy Time Warner, then they get access to, say, for example, a bunch of NBA games. If they buy CBS, they get access to a bunch of NFL games. But it doesn't really it doesn't really solve the life sports problem, which is you know that people want to be able to watch the game that they want to watch when they want to watch it, and uh, and this is making a major purchase like this doesn't solve that problem. But live sports is still such a huge part of the television equation, <clears throat> and none of this addresses that. You know, I think that I, I think the truth is that MLB at bat is probably the long-term future for live sports anyway. I, I think any of the major sports leagues like the NFL, NBA, MLB would be really excited to essentially have monopoly control over their content. 
So if you want to watch a baseball game, you do it through the MLB app on you know whatever device you're using to watch it. And I, you know with what the NFL has tried to do with NFL Network, I think that's indisputably true as well. That NFL would have loved to eventually just be broadcasting all of its own games. Um, the NFL would have to unwind a lot more stuff than the MLB has had to do, but I don't think that it's I, I don't think that's impossible or even unlikely in the long term for that to happen. Now, and Apple's not going to go by the NFL, and so right. um, as long yeah. as that's the case, you know, the live sports problem is always going to be outside of Apple's reach or Google's reach mm-hmm. uh, or Amazon's reach. And as long as that's true, I think uh, <clears throat> there's no really complete solution when it comes to doing an acquisition to give Apple everything it needs to offer a streaming service. So I think in the end, the answer to our original question, can they fix the streaming rights problem with acquisitions? I think the answer is no. I think as right. much as we hate it, as customers, I mean, we hate it because it seems like the media companies are are being are, are being a bit obtuse about what the future holds and not really paying attention to trends. Um, I honestly don't think that it's. It, we're just going to have to wait for them to be in the financial point where they're finally going to be willing to license on terms that are more attractive to the tech companies. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I've, you know, that's that's been my gut feel from the beginning. But uh, interesting to hear all your detailed reasons why, and you raised some things that I hadn't thought about as well. So uh, that was a good run through. Thanks for for preparing that for us. Sure. All right, our final topic today is the uh, preview of Apple's earnings next week. They're reporting what they uh, report as their first quarter of their fiscal year 2016. It's a report, though, for the fourth quarter of the calendar year 2015, um, and uh, they'll be reporting next week uh, before we record next. So we just wanted to run through quickly some of the major things that we're going to be looking for there. Uh, Obviously, we're in earnings season uh, at the moment, and I mentioned Netflix earlier, but a lot of the other big companies will be reporting over the next couple of weeks too. So we'll probably talk about them, at least in part, as we go through as well uh, over the next couple of weeks' episodes. Um, Let's start with the iPhone, because that kind of dominates Apple's reporting. It dominates their their revenues and their profits, and it's what everybody's sort of really focused on when it comes to predicting and evaluating Apple's results. Um, One of the things that's interesting here is that there was a period of a couple of months where a lot of analysts, a lot of the financial analysts, were kind of downgrading their expectations for this quarter based on uh, estimates of iPhone sales. And what's interesting is that... um, Philip Elmer DeWitt at Fortune does a quarterly roundup of major financial analyst predictions. He takes both what he calls the professionals and the, the amateurs, basically people who, who do blogs and things like that, or any sort of independent, and uh, rounds up their estimates for various elements of, of Apple's uh, performance uh, in the coming quarter. And uh, what surprised me was his roundup on iPhone sales actually has them growing year on year in this quarter, which if you look at the narrative in the media around iPhone sales at the moment is not at all what you would think. Um, you know, the focus has all been on people downgrading Apple and so on, um, rather than, you know, expecting a good set of results this quarter. Um, and yet, one thing he also points out in there is that a lot of those firms have now shifted their expectations in terms of when Apple's going to struggle to sell more iPhones this year than last year to the March quarter. So the quarter that we're in right now that will be reported, you know, three months from now. 
Um, and so to some extent, it's just kind of postponing the pessimism uh, for a quarter rather than sort of turning around really on their expectations for, for what Apple's going to do here. But uh, it, it'll be very interesting to watch, I think, you know, iPhone sales, just exactly how much higher they are, assuming they are higher than last year, how much higher they are, uh, and what the mix of phones in there is too. And that's something I want to talk about a bit more in a minute. But, but what do you think about all this, Aaron? You know, I, I agree with everything you've said. I, I'll be interested to hear what they have to say about Android switchers. Um, that was a, a point that they drew particular attention to in the last quarter's report. Right. And I'm curious to see if there's been any acceleration or if they're going to indicate that there's been any acceleration and how Android switching has grown um, over the last quarter. I, you know, there's this there's this general sense that the iPhone, in terms of its growth, is sort of like filled the space, right? I mean, the iPhone has sort of grown where it's going to grow is the general attitude. And and so if that's true, maybe there's a feeling that Apple's sort of filling in nooks and crannies when it comes to iPhone demand now. Not so much the big wide open expanse, but, you know, finding what, what little corners it hasn't reached yet. Um, I'm not sure that's an accurate description, but it seems to be the way most people talk about iPhone growth. Android switchers, mm. whether you consider them like a, a you know a corner that Apple would fill in with iPhone, like a nook or cranny, or if it's a new expanse for them to move into, I think I think it's going to be interesting to hear what they have to say about it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think the Android switcher number, and then another one that's worth looking at is the upgrade number. So the percentage of the base that's upgraded to the latest phones, you know, that's a number that they've called out a couple of times recently as well. Um, one other thing that's worth mentioning is, you know, what does the mix of phones look like? Um, because obviously, a year ago, Apple introduced a new phone at a higher price tier, um, but a year later, that phone's now dropped back to where the new phone used to be, so that the larger of the two phones, a year old, is the same price as the smaller of the, t the new phones this year, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, there's some evidence that the mix of phones uh, between, you know, the current year model and older phones may have shifted somewhat, um, and that Apple may be saying a, selling a higher percentage of, say, iPhone 6s this year than they would have sold, you know, iPhone 5s's the year before. Um, and if that's the case, then it would actually help to explain why, you know, there have been various reports that Apple's been cutting orders for 6 Pluses, um, because they're not selling as many of those, perhaps, but they are still selling a lot of iPhones, they're just the older ones. And so that's something else that's worth watching for as well. Um, you'd see evidence of that potentially in the average selling price uh, on the iPhone side, but I would expect there may well be questions about that on the earnings call as well, and then we may get some more direct confirmation of that uh, from Tim Cook or others on the call as well. Right. Um, let's talk about the watch briefly. Um, you know, we've had two quarters so far. We've talked before about the fact that this is non-transparent as a reporting category for Apple. Um, you know, the holiday quarter should have been by far the biggest of the three so far. Um, you know, pushing Apple to uh, well over 10 million at this point, but uh, very hard to know whether it's you know 12 or 15 or whatever. Uh, 15 would be um, you know a really good quarter. Um, you know, if it's closer to 10 in total, uh, including the two previous quarters, and that would be a, a pretty thin quarter. So very interesting to watch any kind of commentary around this. Aaron, you were saying you're wondering whether they might finally give a number for cumulative sales at least. Yeah, I wonder because Apple likes announcing at thresholds. Um, you know, 10 million, for example, I think is a number that might pop up. I don't think 10, mm -hmm. I don't think 10 million on the watches is, is all that unlikely. And so I don't think it'll become a regular reporting category at this point, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they announce a number. 
Yeah, I think that'd be very interesting to, to see, you know, if they do that. I mean, as I said, 10 million would be relatively low given the two previous quarters. 15 million is probably a bit of a stretch. So whether there's a milestone that, that both sounds good and is achievable within the quarter, that's one of the interesting questions to watch there, I think. Um, obviously, two new products launched in the course of the iPad Pro and the Apple TV. Um, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not expecting them to break out either of those. I know, Aaron, you may feel differently about the Apple TV, and I want you to talk about that. But on the iPad Pro side, it launched so late in the quarter, it was supply constrained, especially on the accessory side. The pencil and the keyboard uh, were hard to get hold of, and so that may have held people off buying the iPad Pro as well. Um, but uh, very interesting to watch, I think, too, for any guidance in terms of the impact of the iPad Pro on overall iPad sales. You know, what does the overall iPad number look like compared to last year and how does that fit with the trend line that we've been seeing of a certain percentage decline year on year? I think that's well worth watching for. The problem with the Apple TV is it's going to be dumped in the same bucket as so many other things like the iPod and accessories and Apple Watch. Um, and so it's going to be very hard unless they do break something out on that to, to really gauge how well that's sold. I think the thing about the Apple TV, and, and like you hinted, I, I think they are going to be announce a number with the Apple TV, is that it's such a low hurdle for them to announce something impressive. I mean, all of these streaming boxes are are, are not, um, I, I mean, they're not a huge business yet. And it'd be really easy for, and I realize that's also true with watches, but I think the the anticipation around their watch has been so big. I think that's why Apple's hesitated to talk about it. Because everybody, I think, at first thought it is the next incarnation of the iPhone. But it, with the Apple TV, expectations are either low or, you know, people are even just kind of distracted from it. And so if they've, I, I've gotten the vibe that <clears throat> anecdotally that the Apple TV had a great holiday season. And so it wouldn't surprise me if they announced something simply because it's going to impress everybody anyway. Um, as far as the iPad Pro goes, I agree with everything you said about it. I, I think what we're going to hear from Apple are just some sort of vague, promising, you know, statements about how the iPad Pro is done. I do think it's going to actually be hard to see the iPad Pro show up in general iPad numbers because with uh, the um, with the other iPad models not seeing terribly huge leaps. Um, and the upgrade cycle still seeming to be pretty long on iPads. I think, I think the iPad Pro, any bump the iPad Pro might have caused, may get buried by continued declining numbers on the iPad line generally. Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, the only other thing that I thought was worth quickly talking about was Apple Music. Um, you know, there was a report I think in the Financial Times in the last week or two about Apple hitting. 10 million paid subscribers. It wasn't directly from Apple, it was sort of sourced. Um, but uh, it seems likely um, that the Apple Music would be at about that point. So I wonder if they'll confirm that on the call and if they'll talk any more about the trend there. And one of the things I'm particularly interested in is any commentary around Android users. Um, obviously, the Android version launched in the quarter hasn't been out there long enough for those to have converted into paid users yet, but uh, it'll be interesting to see if that's had a material impact. I'm sure they'll be asked about that. Um, it may well prompt questions about whether they should take other apps to Android as well, something I still think is very unlikely for them to do, but um, they've opened the door to those questions, I think, now, and so it'll be interesting to see if they do get asked about that and what their commentary is about all of that. Um, but, uh, you know, momentum on the Apple Music side, you know, anything that they see happening there, I think that'll be interesting to watch for, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm not optimistic about it, 
um, only because I think Apple's realized that it's it's going to be hard and it's going to be a slow accumulation of Apple Music subscribers. Right. And again, I think on that front, they'll probably be a little vague. I mean, part of the problem is, is, you know, they're Apple, they're huge. And the fact that they didn't sort of eat Spotify's lunch right away, it, 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 that was the expectation, whether or not it was reasonable. And I think any 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 announcements that don't show them overtaking Spotify just look disappointing, and I think they get that. And had had, mm-hmm. had they, in fact, they've tried. You know, they've tried to kind of change the the narrative in the press about Apple Music um, over the last few months, and and so I think you're going to see more narrative shifting than you are going to see, you know, any any uh, any. Uh, bragging about how well Apple Music has done. No, that's interesting. That'll be well worth watching for. Um, the only other thing that's worth mentioning, of course, is that Apple does give guidance every quarter. They gave guidance last quarter, and we, we talked about that at the time. Um, they will give guidance again. And so these worries about the March quarter, we're going to know pretty soon how Apple feels about that and, and how realistic it is to be worried about those. Um, you know, if Apple does guide in such a way that it suggests uh, a year-on-year decline in iPhone sales, for example, that will be very big news indeed, although arguably the stock's already had all that priced in. Um, I'm very curious to see the impact on the stock price of a very bullish guidance for, for the March quarter. The stock's really had a hammering over the last few months, along with other tech stocks to some extent, but uh, you know, Apple in particular is down further than a lot of others. And so it'd be very interesting to see how the market responds if Apple uh, provides guidance for the March quarter that's much higher than people are expecting, because that, that, that is something that could really move the share price quite a bit. Well, and, and the truth is, I think this is really crappy market timing to have to do an earnings announcement, especially if they have to give any sort of discouraging guidance for the March quarter. Oh, yeah. I mean, because the, the market's done, you know, had such a rough go for the last, you know, week plus. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, it, it's all, I, I really think it's mostly emotionally driven, but uh that's the problem. If Apple comes out yeah. with any sort of discouraging guidance for the March quarter, I think it's going to accelerate the emotional trading that's been happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Absolutely. Okay, well, we'll wrap up there on the Apple earnings preview and then just finish off this episode with our weekly pick. And it's my turn this week. And for any new listeners, this is a very brief segment that we do at the end of every episode where one of us uh, recommends something that we've been enjoying. Uh, it could be a digital thing like a, an app or a movie or a uh, an album or something like that. It could be a physical object, and we've had all kinds of stuff over the last few months. Um, this week's my turn, uh, and I just want to recommend two little game apps for iOS. Um, the two games or uh, the two apps. One is called uh, Little Broken Robots, and uh, it's a cute little game. Um, it's sort of a puzzle game where you you're nominally repairing robots. What you're really doing is trying to figure out how to fill a space with these different. Um, length lines and so you're told how long the line can be and you have to exactly fill the space uh, with a combination of these different lines it's the kind of thing that's quite hard to explain uh, but very easy to understand if you actually pick up the app Uh, this one's free um, and it has an in-app purchase to unlock unlimited puzzles i think it starts out with some limit on how many puzzles you can do Uh, but it's really fun little thing and a good example of the kind of app that i can enjoy as a grown-up you know if i want to just sort of have some downtime for a few minutes and it's challenging to me but which you know one of my kids could equally play up as long as they're you know um 
mathematically literate they can uh, play the game just as well as I can it might just take them a bit longer um, but they can still have fun with it so that's the first of the two apps that I wanted to recommend and then the other one is an app called Easy Music and this is less of a game and more a sort of an educational thing around music although it's still fun to play with um, but this teaches kids about beats and about notes and about pitch and things like that in a way that's very accessible that doesn't feel overly sort of uh, educational in a way that would be off-putting but they, they it's got a lot of different modes to it at least on the ios version it's also on the apple tv but it seems to be kind of stripped down there uh, but in, in the ios version there's lots of ways that you can practice different things and then you actually get to go into an area where you can create things and record them and that kind of thing and listen to them back and, uh, and you learn to play pieces on the piano and things like that so it's a really fun little app and that's again that one's easy music the other one i talked about was little broken robots um, both on the ios app store uh, Easy Music, I think, is three ninety nine. Um, Little Broken Robots, as I say, is free with an in-app purchase to unlock additional puzzles. Um, but both really good fun, and we'll put we'll put links to those on the website at uh, podcast.beyonddevices, as as we usually do with these weekly picks. Well, thank you for being with us again this week. We appreciate you spending the time with us. We welcome your feedback and comments either on the website, Twitter, or anywhere else that you would like to get hold of us. Uh, leave us a review on the iTunes uh, store, uh, on the podcast. That always helps new people to discover us as well. And uh, we look forward to being with you again next week when, as I said, we'd probably have a fairly heavy emphasis on Apple's results, but hopefully cover some other stuff as well. Thanks.